Okay, something strange here. This is the third show we've done in just the past few weeks that has its roots in the year 1989. I'm beginning to think it's not a coincidence. Well, 1989 was a big year. Uh, yeah, Rick Moranis had two big hits that year, Ghostbusters 2 and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's not what I meant. I was thinking of our recent episodes with Mary Kaiser from the California Community Reinvestment Corporation, which was formed in 1989, and Andrew Arend from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, which first published their out-of-reach report in 1989. Uh, yeah, actually, so was I. Um, 1989 was a big year in the affordable housing market, and it's not just coincidence. It has a lot to do with the early years of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program and a period of some deliberate national attention on affordable housing. So today, let's get into that detail. Let's look back at 1989, at the history of the tax credit program, and how that history relates to the affordability challenges we're facing today. Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenwas. And I'm Corey Aber. Today, we're going to take an in-depth look at the low-income housing tax credit program from its inception to today and the role it has played in the affordable housing market over time. There's a lot to this story, and it's more relevant now than ever, given the severe affordability challenges around the country. And we're fortunate to be joined today by someone whose name is practically synonymous with tax credits, Michael Novogratik. Michael is head of and namesake for one of the leading tax credit and accounting uh, consulting firms in the country, uh, Novogratik and & Company. And he's also the host of his own excellent podcast, Tax Credit Tuesday. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of the program. So before we get started, I have to ask you, uh, when you came up with Tax Credit Tuesday, your podcast, were you aware that you were in direct competition with Taco Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> I was not. I was not. I guess we both have an affinity for alliteration. <laughs> so anyway, bold move on your part. But uh, more seriously, right? so we have a trend now on the show. Um, so happy 30th anniversary. Uh like we said in the intro, this is the third show we've done with the 30th anniversary. So congrats on that. Thank you. So uh, you've been around since uh, 1989, and so you've pretty much seen it all in the in the tax credit world. And I want to get into that background a little bit. But first, um, and maybe as part of that, can you answer for us why 1989 is so important? Well, 1989 uh, was important beyond Novogratz and Company being formed. Uh, the uh, it, it reflected... The third year, actually, anniversary, 1989, was of the creation of the low-income housing tax credit. I mean, the low-income housing tax credit was created. Uh, it had a 33-year anniversary coming up on October 22nd. It was created in 1986 as part of the Tax Reform Act of 86. And uh, when 1989 rolled along, the credit was set to expire because initially the 86 Tax Reform Act only enacted the low-income housing tax credit for three years. It was essentially a demonstration program, and then when 1989 rolled along, the credit had been so successful that it was time to get it renewed. Right, so let, let's look at that then. So 86 uh, started demonstration program. What, uh, what made it so successful? What, what was sort of the example of that success? I think the, uh, this has been a remarkable success, and when it did kick off in 86, I'm not sure that the broader affordable housing community and certainly the broader real estate community was uh, as uh, didn't expect the success that it sort of had. And then actually in the first year, roughly 20% of the tax credits that were available were used or were allocated. And then that picked up dramatically a year later in 1988, 
and then by 89 it was fully subscribed and it was seen as a success that it could be and it the incentive was unique in that Congress basically in 86 said as part of tax reform we've got a variety of incentives to develop affordable housing that are there's a handful that don't really focus they said let's take all these incentives take them out of the code and target it on this tax credit program and this tax credit program will basically give investors more tax credits to the extent they dedicate more units to affordable rental housing and it was creative in that it allowed equity to come in up front investor equity to come in up front uh, to build or renovate affordable housing and then that tax credit equity was able to allow the properties themselves to have less debt and since they had less debt they could afford to rent at lower income to lower uh, income level tenants at lower rents provide more services and more amenities it was basically a way of having less debt tax for equity replaces the debt uh, and then it also uh, allows the uh, owners uh, to have confidence that over a 15-year period the projects will be sort of financially stable while they're serving low-income families and it, and it is, I mean, the, the program um, with those characteristics, as you say, is, uh, has been remarkably successful. I think uh, you quote kind of the, the slow, a little bit of a slow start, but picking up over those three years. And then what is it now? About 100,000 units a year get put online due to the tax credit program? That is correct. And there's really two tax credit programs or tax credit incentives. There's the allocated uh, incentive, which is often referred to as a 9% uh, incentive. And then there's also the tax credits that go along with financing a property with taxes and bonds or productivity bonds. So those uh, two uh, incentives of those two programs together uh, support over 100,000 units a year. So were both of those uh, around right at the beginning, or, or was there a, a staged implementation? Uh, they were both around right at the beginning. Uh, however, the taxes and bond piece, the 4% credit, aspect wasn't uh, as popular initially uh, because of interest rates and a variety of other factors it had a slower slower pickup and initially it was essentially the nine percent allocated uh, incentive there was also some uh, structural issues with the four percent program when it was enacted in 86 that were corrected in 89 that allowed it to really take off all right and i know that there's been other changes over the years like uh in 1993, there was the effort to address the year 15 issue. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Right. Sure. Well, the, uh, that kind of goes back to the, the year 15 issue uh, was addressed in 1989. So initially, when the incentive was created in 1986, it was a 15-year compliance period where you had to uh, rent to low-income families at restricted rents for 15 years, albeit you claimed the tax credits themselves over a 10-year period. However, uh, by the time 1989 rolled along, Congress became aware and more concerned about the fact that the, the rent restriction period was only 15 years. So Congress added an additional 15 years in 1989, such that uh, affordable rental properties supported by the Long Island Cash Credit now have a 30-year uh, rent restriction period. Uh, there is a qualified contract exception, so in some states, it's not. It won't always be the full 30 years. But as a general matter, it's 30 years. And I will note that a number of states 
uh, even before the federal requirement to go to 30 years, had their own uh, rent restriction period that was longer. California, for instance, has a 55-year uh, rent restriction period. So 89 saw the credit get extended uh, for a short period of time, and then we actually, along with the tax credit, went through a series of short-term extensions. And then in 1993, uh, the credit was made a permanent part of the tax code. Now, I say permanent, and I wish I could say it really is a permanent part of the tax code in 1993, but it's probably more accurate to say in 1993 it became an indefinite part of the tax code. Uh, and at that point in time, up until then, from 89 through 93, there was a, always a concern as to how we're going to get the, the credit extended again. It was one of the tax extenders, if you will, that was always being dealt with by uh, Congress at Periods, various periods of time, and there was one six-month period of time where the long term tax credit had actually expired, such that there wasn't any additional funding. So 90, 1993 was a big year in that it became an indefinite part of the tax code. And then in the year 2000, uh, we saw our first uh, increase uh, in the actual allocation amount. And the allocation amount in the year uh, 2000 went from $1.25 per capita, because it was an allocated credit to the states, to $1.75, so it's a 40% increase that also allowed for some inflation. So the year 2000 was a big year. And then uh, the other probably momentous uh, period of time in terms of changes was in 2008. Uh, in 2008, uh, just as the beginning of the Great Recession, there were a series of improvements and enhancements uh, to the loan income tax credit. However, we weren't quite aware as to when those changes were sort of made, what was coming with the Great Recession. So then we experienced a, uh, the challenges of the Great Recession. And then that was, so 2008 was another uh, big year with a number of changes. And then today, there's a number of changes now being proposed, further enhancements as part of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. Uh, that's a, a bill that's working its way through Congress. So potentially 30 years from now, we'll be doing another 30-year uh, anniversary uh, podcast. I'm looking forward to it. I will be here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to understand uh, and maybe just dig into this a little bit. So it's a federal program done through the federal uh, uh, tax code, but administered by the states, right? So there's variation across the country? That is correct. And that's, I think, one of the, you say, why has it been so successful? I definitely think the fact that it's administered at the state level and in two areas, it's administered at the city level in New York City and the city of Chicago. They have their own uh, sort of separate allocation amounts, but it's essentially a, a state-managed uh, uh, incentive, and you basically have these federal requirements, and then states are able to then layer in their own individual additional requirements uh, on the incentive and on the properties that receive the funding. And that way each state can customize it uh, to what's needed in their state and within different areas within their state. And you talked about the $1.75 per capita. And just to be clear, that's that's with respect to the 9% credit? Is, is that right? But the 4% is, is, works is a little bit differently? Yeah, the $1.75, which has since grown to $2.75 uh, in that's amount available this year. That's two seventy five per capita, so it's population adjusted. So obviously California with the largest population gets the largest allocation amount. And there is a small state minimum. So if a state uh, doesn't have population uh, that generates more than about $3 million of annual allocation, then they'll get the smaller state minimum. Uh, and that is the 9% incentive. 
on the four percent of the taxes and bond uh, incentive. That re- that is based upon productivity bond allocation that's available by state, and then that's a similar per capita allocation amount of productivity bonds. But I will say on the productivity bond side, on the four percent side, every state has to decide how much of those bonds they want to use for residential rental housing or other uses, like single family and the rest. So that that's a resource that, depending upon the state you're in, is more or less is used for uh, affordable rental housing. Now, do you do you see and have you seen over time a difference in uh, how states use the nine percent credit and how developers use nine percent versus four percent? Uh, absolutely, and uh, the nine percent generally is used for new construction, and the private activity bond credit is generally used for acquisition uh, renovation, um, and that's because of the, the the way the economics of the two incentives work with the general financing of an acquisition rehab versus a new construction. And those are obviously you know broad. Uh, trends. There's definitely some 9% that gets used for acquisition rehab, and there's definitely a lot of private safety bonds that gets used for new construction. But it's definitely more new construction, 9%, and acquisition rehab for the 4%. Right, and still still sticking with broad trends, and going back to the uh, year 15 uh, uh, period and then the longer extended use period, um, is it a you know, fair statement Generally speaking, 9% are, are used for the new construction, like you said, and then around year 15, uh, developers, uh, borrowers, uh, property owners are looking to uh, get new tax credits on the property, maybe using 4%, or do you see a lot of uh, properties just continuing on uh, till the end of their extended use period and not looking for new credits? Yes. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, we definitely see uh, large numbers of properties that are that go beyond their 15-year uh, uh, initial tax credit uh, compliance period, and then they're into their 15-year or longer extended use period. In California, it would be a 40-year extended use period because it's 55 years, and other states have longer periods as well. So there's a large number, and I would say the vast majority of properties just continue on. Uh, there, but then there's also a subset of 9% properties that by the time you get to year 15, 16, 17, 18, and get it into those sort of outer years, there is a need for a renovation. Uh, and to accept there's a need for renovation, for rehabilitation of portions of the property, then there is the option, depending upon the rules of the state, to apply and do a private activity bond, access and rehab, uh, to refresh the units themselves to further extend their economic viability. Yeah, and um, maybe turn into um, once the once the credits uh, are allocated to the state, and then the state um, determines projects for them to go into. Uh, then those tax credits are sold, and uh, and the prices of those tax credits are kind of market driven or change over time with cycles. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? tax attorney friends uh-huh. out there, I'll say that the credits aren't technically sold. Okay. <laughs> uh, technically, the uh, uh, investors invest in partnerships, and the partnerships themselves, when the investors are investing in the partnerships that are going to own and operate the properties, they are going to invest an amount of equity into the partnership, and they, uh, when they're looking at how much equity they want to put into the partnership, 
it's highly driven, obviously, by the amount of the tax credits they're going to get. But the whole pricing of their investment is really a function of three items. It's the tax credits predominantly. Uh, it's also what tax losses they project to get over time, as well as some uh, minor amount of economic return or equity, if you will. So there's those sort of three factors with the tax credits and the losses being the predominant aspect as to how they determine what the tax credit equity pricing is. And the tax credit equity pricing is definitely uh, you know, seeing its rises uh, and its uh, periodic dips. When the uh, incentive was first created back in 86, uh, the uh, equity pricing was in the 40, 50, 60 cent range as it was sort of rising uh, sort of uh, over time as folks are getting familiar with it, you know, running their numbers, bringing in different investors and the like. And then, by and then in 1993, when the credit was made an indefinite part of the tax code, we saw a wealth of corporate investment starting. Before then, it was principally sort of individuals, which had a higher cost of capital raise and the like. And then in 1993, when you had corporations kind of coming in, uh, you started to see the uh, equity pricing uh, rising. And then you ended up getting uh, equity pricing up to the sort of 80 cent range. And then the 80 cent range uh, kept rising and rising, and it got up to uh, roughly a dollar uh, per equity pricing, tax credit pricing per, uh, up until the Great Recession. And then the Great Recession, as we got up to the nearly a dollar, the, the Great Recession caused pricing to drop dramatically. And equity pricing dropped to the 65 to 70 cent range during the Great Recession. And then remarkably, it picked back up pretty quickly uh, right after the Great Recession, and then kept rising uh, until uh, November of 2016. And then the equity pricing kept rising and got up to a dollar, even north of a dollar in uh, 2016. And then with the, uh, in 2016, the uh, election results of 2016 caused a lot of investors to think corporate tax reform was coming. And when you value the tax credit uh, equity pricing, you take into account both the losses, uh, the value of the losses and the credits and the, the losses themselves, if the corporate tax rate is lower, isn't as aren't as valuable. So after the elections of 2016, the, we saw a dip in pricing from the dollar plus down to the maybe the high 90s. And then that high 90 price is, is where it, or mid 90s, I should say, mid to lower 90s. And that price is probably what, is what we've seen since then, since the election and since the enactment of lower corporate tax rates. And so I want to go back to the, the post-recession uh, increase for a moment. Uh, was that surprising? And, and what, what do you think caused it? Well, so I guess the, the dip uh, and then the right. increase. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And it... Uh, what surprised me with the uh, Great Recession is how quickly the pricing dipped and how quickly it rose. <laughs> so it rose the price twice. <laughs> uh, and the reason why it dipped so dramatically is the market for tax credit investors is dominated by banks. And banks will be investing in uh, affordable housing uh, tax credits. Uh, for the economic return combined with credit for Community Reinvestment Act purposes. 
where they are required to reinvest uh, in the communities in which they serve, in which they've received deposits. So uh, when the Great Recession came along, you know, a large number of financial institutions were more focused on making their way through and surviving the recession, the Great Recession, so they pulled back on the equity investments they were making in uh, low-income housing tax credits. So that pulled back pretty dramatically. That led to the decline in pricing. And then, then and they did it pretty quickly. And then they, the recession, as it was sort of ending, they came back in uh, pretty dramatically. So it dipped down rapidly and then shot back up pretty rapidly. And then there was maybe a 18-month time period in between where the equity pricing was staying low. So is is there a you know, material regional variation uh, in equity pricing? Uh, there absolutely is, and I I would and it's really driven by larger banks and where their Community Reinvestment Act obligations are. And if you look at a lot of urban areas, uh, they'll have extremely high equity pricing because financial institutions have strong needs to be investing in those communities. And then when you get into uh, a number of suburban and rural areas, there's not nearly as much need, so the equity pricing uh, isn't as strong. Meaning not as much need on the investor side. That is correct. There's not as much need on the investor side. That's an important clarification. There's not as much need on the investor side to be investing in those areas as a consequence, they don't compete as aggressively for those uh, investments. And as a consequence, the equity pricing isn't quite as high as it is in the high uh, CRA demand areas. There's clearly lots of need from an affordable housing perspective in rural, suburban, and urban areas. And the hope then is that as, as they collect those um, funds, that, uh, that that's going to cover a significant cost, a piece of the cost of uh, building or maintaining um, affordable housing. So that pricing really matters, right? Because then otherwise there would need to be capital from debt, as you said before, or other sources. That's exactly right. And it's to the extent that you can get a higher equity price, the, the project itself, the development, can either A, ask for fewer credits from the state, and the states like that because if you don't need as much credit, then they can finance more projects. So, you know, equity pricing allows there to be fewer credits uh, per development. It also allows the developments to serve lower income families, uh, provide more amenities, as well as provide more services. The equity pricing is pretty uh, critical uh, to getting the most we can out of the tax credit incentive. And one of the things that we've looked at a lot. Uh, recently in a couple of papers over, over last year and, and some coming out this year is uh, high opportunity areas and the ways that affordable housing can promote economic mobility for uh, for families. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit curious so how that ties into um, equity pricing for one and, and also um, maybe a local preference and incentive. Right. right. And the... Uh and clearly a number of states, probably virtually all states, have within their allocation plans uh, an effort to deal with high opportunity areas. And 
trying to direct some portion of the credit allocations to high opportunity areas. Uh, and so, and I would I would say in large measure, the uh, tax credit incentive is so much in demand uh, throughout the country, within a given state, in all areas within the state, that uh, how the credit ends up getting used is highly driven by the state qualified allocation plans. Uh, one of the unique aspects about the incentive is the, as we noted earlier, the states administer it, and every state has to have a qualified allocation plan. And that allocation plan is basically how they plan to distribute uh, and make available the credit in their state and to areas within their state and types of developments within their state. So that's what really kind of drives that. And to the extent a state is focused on high opportunity areas, they'll make more credits available in those areas, and as a consequence, more developments will happen in those areas. Uh, you know, if a state's less concerned about that and they have other needs that they find more significant, then you won't see quite as much uh, development in the high opportunity areas. No, uh, so that that's really uh, helpful to understand and, and important to understand. And one one of the things I'd I'd like to get into a little bit more uh, is back on the investor side. Uh, so um, clearly, the the credits drive development decisions. Uh, on the in, on the investor side, want to understand. Uh, a little better. You talked about the the big banks and and uh, local banks, but who you know, who are the investors uh, in in tax credits nationally, and does it does it vary by uh, types of market? Yeah, the uh, I mean the investors are you have the, the larger banks, smaller regional banks, local banks. So financial institutions are major, the most significant investor. You also have insurance companies. And then you have, you know, other tech companies and the like, you know, filling up uh, the types of investors that are out there. And uh, there's several different models for how funds get raised uh, for investment in tax credit housing. And oftentimes it's viewed as there are multi-investor funds or proprietary funds, and then there's direct investors. And you have within the multi-investor funds, those tend to be the investors that aren't as experienced uh, in investing in tax credits. They don't have as great an appetite uh, for tax credits, and they like the fact that they can go into a multi-investor fund. They get diversi diversification. They get the oversight that other uh, investors are providing uh, of the fund, and it's a way of entering into becoming kind of an initial investor and or a much more passive uh, investor. And then you have what are called proprietary funds, where you know you have one large investor with a lot of demand uh, for investment throughout the country. They have large dollar amounts and they're pretty experienced, but they don't want to have a team that's out there uh, originating investments, doing the underwriting, and then doing the ongoing asset management for the 15 plus period of time. So then those are what are called sort of proprietary funds, and then you have the direct investors. And those are, you know, those institutions and companies that have uh, substantial experience, substantial uh, demand to invest, and they basically have to create their own group to make the investments sort of directly uh, and avoid investing through a tax credit sponsor. And is the the types of properties different that they might invest in, or or they're all sort of looking at the same? You know, they are uh, all generally looking at. At the same, I, mean, I would say the multi-investor funds are more likely to do 
the rural transactions are slightly more likely to do uh, the more uh, uh, involved uh, transactions, uh, the, the, those that might have more uh, economic risk, because when you look at a uh, low income cash flow transaction, depending upon, they could have more or less real estate risk depending upon how the financing is structured and who the tenants are and the location and the rest. So those that have a little bit more uh, risk may tend towards some of the multi-investor funds. But they, they definitely, all three funds serve all different product types. So it's hard to generalize in terms of one over the other. And um, taking a step back a bit to just the affordability um, issue that, that we have in the markets today, I think that the the tax credit program is certainly something that's been successful in, in producing affordable housing, um, yet yet we've got such a big problem right now. Um, how, how do you think... Um, uh, you know this problem developed, and ha- and ha- what are you know some ideas on solutions? Yeah, well, I can't help but think of uh, Will Rogers saying, you know, investing land and not making more of it. Yeah. Uh, I just uh, and it, it does strike me as somewhat inevitable that housing will get sort of more expensive, uh, sort of over time, um, because populations are sort of growing. <laughs> Uh, so you end up over time having to have uh, greater levels of density and greater demand for existing land and the like. So it does strike me as that's the sort of general arc. Uh, you know, that being said, uh, there is a there are a host of factors that sort of play into where we are today, from land use regulation issues to uh, you know, construction, rising construction costs uh, to you know, the level of affordability, the level of financing that's available at the state, local, and federal level. But I definitely think it's a combination of, of lack of uh, production and their growing uh, population. And you know, I'm not uh, breaking any news there. There's no news flash there. <laughs> and, you know, but it definitely is also something that you look at and, I do think we're getting to the point where it's getting such attention that I do think, you know, things will get uh, probably a little bit worse, and then I think they can get better. Because uh, I think it's getting attention at all levels of government. The media is giving the issue a lot more attention, uh, and probably more importantly, elected and appointed government officials are discussing the issue a lot more. Uh, and you're seeing a lot more legislation at the state level uh, addressing the matter. And I think we'll continue to see more uh, legislation at the federal level addressing the matter as well. It's interesting just looking at you know the moment today versus you know the moment in in the '80s when the tax credit program was was created. Are you seeing you know, sort of differences in the national attention now versus then, or, or the way people are thinking about things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the, uh, the 86 Tax Reform Act, uh, it was actually in large measure or significant measure a reaction to actually a lot of construction in residential rental. There were a lot of tax shelters building residential rental housing, and, it, and the annual production of residential rental housing had grown to 500,000-plus units back in uh, the 86 timeframe. So there was lots of there were a lot of tax incentives to build affordable rental housing before the eighty six act. The eighty six act came in and said, you know, we're not sure this is the what we want to be incenting. 
not that we didn't want to be incenting residential rental, we just didn't want to be incenting residential rental sort of tax shelters, so they brought in a series of rules, and that caused the production of residential rental housing to drop dramatically, uh, and then, you know, led to a lot of uh, issues in the real estate uh, industry, in the real estate community, and I think ever since then, we've been trying to build back the level of annual production of residential rental, so I do think, you know, because of the reduction in the production you know, caused in part by that to where we are today, that every year, you know, the housing needs uh, of all uh, Americans have been more challenged, and particularly for those at lower income levels. Did did the, uh, you know, legislation in the 80s focus the tax incentives more on affordable housing? Absolutely, they did. That was the one in the 86 Act, they basically took a number of incentives that didn't, that weren't targeted towards uh, residential rental low, for low-income residential rental, and they basically said, we're going to create this one targeted tax incentive for uh, low-income rent-restricted housing, and that's what the 86 Act, that's why the long the tax credit was created. They said, while we recognize that we're taking away a lot of incentives for residential rental, we know that there's one uh, area where we want to continue to incent uh, the development of residential rental housing, and that's those serving lower-income families uh, at restricted rents. So looking at, at today now, so fast-forwarding again 30 years, uh, or a little less than 30 years, so in this recent uh, tax reform effort, there was something new, right? There's opportunity zones. Uh, and so I'm curious on, on your thoughts on, on that, how that works with affordable housing and, and supply generally, and, and maybe a little bit of a view towards the future with that. Oh, sure. And first of all, when we talk about opportunity zones, we're not talking about high opportunity areas. You mentioned earlier high opportunity areas, and high opportunity areas are those with you know, higher median incomes and, uh, and uh, lower poverty rates and the like. Opportunity zones are areas that are distressed, they're low-income communities as designated under the New Market Tax Credit uh, Incentive. And it's, you know, there's 8,700 plus of these uh, opportunity zones throughout the country. And there's tax incentives for investing uh, in opportunity zones. And, you know, I won't get into all the, the tax incentives, but safe to say there are a number of funds out there that are looking to invest in opportunity zones. We at Novogratic are tracking opportunity funds, and we're tracking over 264 funds. Uh, and the uh, of those funds, we actually have information on 208 of them as to what types of areas they want to invest. And of those 208, two-thirds or 66 percent have residential rental housing as one of their investment categories. And what's, I think, more remarkable is about a quarter, 23 percent, are only going to be investing in residential uh, rental housing. So I find that, and that can be billions and billions of dollars going into residential rental housing uh, in opportunity zones. Now, the one thing to think about when you, when you hear about these funds, you think, well, what type of housing will they be investing in? It'll generally be new construction uh, and not likely be very much in the way of renovation of existing rental housing. And I say that because under the Opportunity Zones incentive, you either have to be a new business or you have to substantially improve an existing business. And the way you substantially improve an existing uh, rental unit 
is you have to spend more than 100% of the cost of acquiring the building. So as a consequence, most residential rental housing that's out there today that's occupied and being rented in a uh, opportunity zone uh, isn't going to be financially make sense to go in and do 100% uh, renovation of that housing. Now, when I say that, some people are, you know, some uh, communities are concerned about that because they look at this and say, well, that means that opportunity zone incentive won't be renovating uh, housing in a lot of areas that are in need of renovation. However, uh, while it'll, that's true, uh, it also means that you won't see much in the way of displacement of existing residents through direct displacement of someone buying a property and then renovating it uh, because the economics are, won't work. Now, there has been some discussion on that issue that maybe Treasury could come out with some guidance that said, Maybe there's a lower substantial improvement threshold if you're going to renovate existing housing and maybe put in certain requirements like you could you only get this lower threshold if you rent to low-income families or you agree not to displace existing tenants or you put other restrictions on the property such that you don't get direct displacement from Opportunity Zone and send it investment. And do you expect there to be overlap in usage, in, you know, usage of of tax credits in opportunity zones? That's a great question. It's something we spent a lot of time at Novogradic uh, analyzing. And when you look uh, at the code, Internal Revenue Code, which I like to do, uh, at the opportunity zones and the local tax credit conceptually, you say, yes, there should be lots of overlap. But functionally, the answer is not much yet. Uh, and the reason why is I mentioned earlier that the current uh, local detachment investors generally are bank uh, investors or dominated by bank investors. And banks don't have viable programmatic capital gains. The Opportunity Zone incentive is all about investing capital gains uh, in distressed areas. So if the current uh, crop of investors and local detachment credits don't have uh, programmatic, reliable uh, capital gains, then the way the two can work together is if you bring in other types of investors. However, the way Treasury has interpreted the rules, there's a number of barriers to other non-bank investors being incented to invest in local cash credit properties in opportunity zones. Uh, we at Novogradic, through Opportunity Zones Working Group, have submitted comments and letters to Treasury specifically on these issues. And we're hopeful that Treasury will interpret the rules in a way that opens up the ability to marry the two together. And if we, if that's true, then we'll get a lot more non-bank investors uh, in uh, Opportunity Zone local tax credit properties, which will mean that equity pricing rises and we can get more housing built and serve lower income families through the local tax credit in Opportunity Zones. It seems that Opportunity Zones then are, are probably a pretty important part of the future of the housing market and uh, economic development. And so I'm curious, just looking looking beyond that a little bit, what do you see happening in the, the next 30 years, uh, or even maybe at least the next five? <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't see a solution to the affordable housing crisis. I wish I could see a complete solution, but I don't see a complete solution out there. But that being said, uh, I do think that because of the 
greater level of attention in the media and among uh, elected and, uh, and appointed government officials. I see more attention being placed to the affordable housing issue. So I do see the arc bending towards more solutions, towards more supply, towards uh, uh, better regulation uh, to allow more uh, units to get built. So I do think that we're headed into a period of time where the, the issue gets better. Um, but it's, I also, when I say that, uh, I say that not wanting folks to look at that and say, great, I don't need to pay attention to it. Because <laughs> I think the arc only gets better as long as the attention stays focused and uh, more are engaged in trying to find solutions. And as long as we can continue the level of attention and effort uh, and mission driven today, uh, I think the situation will get better. But if we take for granted that it's going to get better, then it won't. That's well said. And uh, certainly, uh, we want to keep our attention on it. And uh, and you've uh, been so helpful today in helping us understand the uh, the tax credit program, how it works, and its history. And uh, and we look forward to that being you know a continued piece of the solution. And uh, and really appreciate your being here today. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And keep up the good work. Nice to have a competitor out there in the podcast world. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.